Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can find all of my written work there at that website, quipster.net. That's Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast that covers newer movies that are out in theaters, VOD, streaming services, what have you. Wherever you get your new movies, I do cover some of them, the ones that catch my interest anyway, or I think you might enjoy and you can listen to that podcast by clicking the link to the quipster film review podcast at quipster.net today i'm going to get into the first part of another three-part series the last three-part series looked at benevolent aliens the next three movies are going to feature aliens as well however they will be concentrating a little bit more on misunderstood aliens aliens that have come to earth and they try to assimilate, but the humans do not exactly take kindly to them. The first movie I'm going to be talking about today is a cult classic kind of movie from the 1980s. It's not necessarily mainstream. It's not well known among people, even those people who really enjoy films of the 1980s. But if you really like independent movies, you certainly will have heard of this because it's considered one of the better movies from a writer and director that really popularized independent films in the 1980s. The man I'm talking about is John Sayles, and he writes and directs this 1984 film called The Brother from Another Planet. It's an R-rated film. It does have drug content, violence, and language. The runtime is one hour and 48 minutes. The main star is Joe Morton, and supporting roles go to Carolyn Aaron, Dee Dee Bridgewater, Tom Wright, Steve James. John Sayles is also in this film. David Strathairn. Bill Cobbs, Leonard Jackson, Daryl Edwards, and Fisher Stevens gets a cameo role here. As I mentioned, John Sayles does write, direct, edit, and a lot of other things. It's not a one-man operation, but he definitely is the author of this film. Now, if you've ever heard of The Brother from Another Planet, oftentimes you will hear it called a Black E.T. because its main character, he's a kindly extraterrestrial. He has healing powers, just like E.T., but he has the appearance of a black man from Earth. Film historians do note that John Sayles wrote the screenplay to Night Skies. That was that horror-tinged sci-fi concept I've been talking about in my review for E.T. Eventually, as you know, it became the heartwarming family E.T., several major revisions to the script later, but that experience was not what drew John Sayles to make this film. Actually, the origin of Brother from Another Planet came from a series of dreams that he had, and it was during this particularly stressful time he was tinkering around with the sound mix, trying to meet the deadline for this 1983 film he was working on called Baby It's You, and he had a lot of pressure from the studio, which I'll get to in a moment. Now, all of these dreams have to do with him working on a script somehow, and in the first dream, he was revising the science fiction comedy concept for Roger Corman. Roger Corman was somebody that he began his film career with. This film is going to be directed by Joe Dante. Sales had collaborated with Joe Dante for his first screenwriting gig, Piranha, as well as later in The Howling. But this project was going to be called, and I'll use my phrasing here carefully, A-Holes from Outer Space, only it wasn't abbreviated. Now, the A-Holes were aliens on Earth that were working among us. They were taking jobs. They were aggravating the most humans. They were taxi drivers and used car salesmen and DMV clerks. 
This, by the way, is not to be confused. There was an unrelated film that came out just a following year from Brother from Another Planet called Morons from Outer Space. That was not this concept. Now, the second dream that Sales had, he was directing. He was making a feature. It was going to be a film noir concept, very similar in his mind to Carol Reed's Odd Man Out from the 1940s. But this one was going to be about Bigfoot, and it would be called Bigfoot in the City. And in this dream concept, Bigfoot was a fugitive, he was injured, he was on the run, and he stumbles into Seattle, and there's this big manhunt, or Bigfoot hunt, as it were. Now, both of these dreams were, in and of themselves, not enough to make a whole movie around. But then he had this third dream. And this third dream was about him writing and directing a movie that would be about a mute black man, and he was walking down 125th Street in Harlem, but he was unable to communicate with others around him. They were looking at him very funny, but he looked like them, but he wasn't quite like them, or at least he wasn't able to communicate his wants and needs to anybody around him. Now, because that also was not enough to sustain an actual film concept, he started thinking about these dreams he was having, and he conceived of a story that combined elements of all three of these dreams. And in this hybrid story, there would be an alien who crash lands on Earth, and he stumbles his way into Harlem. But the alien was mute, but he had the appearance of a black man. He was injured, but he could self-heal, and he was a fugitive from his home planet, where, as on Earth, black people were slaves. They still are on his home planet, not so much on Earth. Now, although he obviously is not from Earth, the alien found that his external appearance was more important to people around him than the fact that he was from another planet. In fact, they had no concept that he was from another planet when he met them because he very much resembles somebody from Earth. The black people of Harlem, they are skeptical about him at first because he seems kind of a weirdo, but they end up embracing him. And But he finds soon enough that many of the same societal problems and barriers that affected black Americans who were born and raised on Earth, they instantly attached to him as well because of his appearance. Now, John Sales saw this as an allegory for the Underground Railroad, and that was a time when enslaved Africans found their way to freedom, only to find that they were still segregated by the invisible walls of slavery and racism, at least the residuals of it. The stranger here in this movie, the alien, makes observations about society that those within can't seem to see, whether because they have poor information or they have to deal with personal concerns and distractions. So while he was developing this story concept here, Sales started butting heads with Paramount Pictures. They were the studio that bought out the rights for his independently produced $3 million film called Baby It's You. And Paramount requested changes to this film because they wanted to increase its commercial appeal with those things that were doing well at the box office at the time. So Sales fought tooth and nail to allow as much of his vision to stay in the completed picture, including threatening to take his name off of it altogether due to all of the changes that Paramount wanted to make. Ultimately, Paramount still made the changes, but test screenings fared worse than the cut that he had done, so he ultimately prevailed. They decided to just let him release the one that he wanted to release, but that experience left him bitter. He vowed to never make movies where he didn't have authorship of his own work, something that was very important to him because he came from the world of writing, writing short stories, writing novels, where he had complete autonomy over all of his story and all of his characters. He wanted to be the architect of his story. He didn't want to be just a carpenter. Of course, being still an up-and-comer in the industry, the only way to assure final cut rights 
and your own casting choices is going to be to finance your own films independently or to pay for them out of his own pocket. Baby 2, unfortunately, it lost money, so studios weren't exactly knocking on his door to take over any more big projects, and they certainly weren't going to give him full reign of an expensive movie. So his next intended project was this one he was passionate about called Meitwan, which was this period piece about the West Virginia coal strike of the 1920s. Sales secured funding for about $2.5 million for that film, but that deal fell through, and that left him back at square one at getting funding for that movie. So he was frustrated by the financial considerations of filmmaking at that time. So he decided what he was going to do to move forward was his next film was going to be that black alien concept that he was nurturing. And to avoid entanglements of going through the long and laborious process of dealing with such things as the Securities and Exchange Commission to try to get financing protection, he decided he was going to pay out of his own pocket for the film. He titled it The Brother from Another Planet. That's kind of a, a playoff of the phrase brother from another mother. And brother being, of course, what many black men call each other because they are brothers from another mother. Sales was going to fund all of this from money that he received from Baby It's You, as well as selling the cable rights to his debut directorial feature, The Return of the Secaucus 7. And he also would be a writer for hire for several projects, including this intended miniseries of Jean Owl novels, Clan of the Cave Bear, and Valley of the Horses. It was going to be a television miniseries, but they decided to make Clan of the Cave Bear into a feature film, which starred Daryl Hannah, came out later, and he was not necessarily heavily involved. I'll get into that film at some point in this podcast future. With all of this money, he was going to use everything that he had in the bank, $350,000. It did help that his living expenses were basically covered by receiving a genius grant of about $34,500 a year, tax-free with no conditions for five years. That was a grant that was given to extraordinarily talented people by the MacArthur Foundation. So he had enough to live on, a safety net, as it were, so he could really take a chance and spend that uh, $350,000 to make Brother from Another Planet. Sales knew he could do it because he learned how to make films very cheaply in his early days. He worked for Roger Corman, where they stretched every dollar to its maximum. The Return of the Sakakas 7, his debut directorial feature, he made it for only $60,000, and in the theaters it made about $2 million in its overall run. So he knew he could be successful in making small, independently produced movies that studios normally wouldn't touch. Sales paid himself and his assistant director below union scale for their time working on this film. That did require him leaving the Directors Guild because they expected him and his assistant director to make scale, but that would chew up a lot of his intended budget. So, so he would leave the guild that he had just joined and he would hamper himself and his ability to direct in Hollywood for this foreseeable future, he considered it worth the gamble because Hollywood was not giving him final cut at this point anyway. He assigned his producers, Maggie Renzi and Peggy Ratsky, to round up the cast and crew while he became busy hammering out the script. Sales completed the script after only six days. He worked nonstop through those six days, and then he spent the next 24 days with his assistant director in Harlem, scouting locations while the producers were handling bringing more talent on board. The shoot was scheduled to be four weeks in duration. The finalized plot for Brother from Another Planet involves, as I mentioned, a mute extraterrestrial resembling a black man. The only thing that's different about him is that he has feet that have three toes each on them. He crash lands his spaceship near New York City in the harbor near Ellis Island, not understanding where he is or what people are saying, he eventually finds his way to Harlem's 125th Street. Although he gets derided as 
either crazy or homeless by the people there, others who get to know him soon discover his worth when he can heal or at least fix broken electronics and human injuries with a single touch. There's a concerned social worker that helps him out, try to get a job as a repairman. He starts hobnobbing with patrons at a local bar. The brother also finds out that outside, though, there's a dangerous world full of junkies and thieves and thugs. And he has his own problems to worry about because bounty hunters from his home world are after him. And he soon gets involved with trying to discover the reason for the death of a boy who ends up overdosing on heroin and he discovers a Wall Street drug ring. It's a little bit convoluted, I guess, if you start thinking about it that way. But once you get into the story, you don't necessarily seem to mind all of the detours that it takes. Although an outsider to Harlem himself, John Sales, he thought that his unfamiliarity with Harlem would help him provide observations from an outsider's perspective. Outsider to the culture, outsider to the geographical location, there's a mix of different languages, different cultures within Harlem, and that inspired this allegory as the alien experiencing this world full of people who don't necessarily speak each other's language. They have to communicate to each other, often through nonverbal means. And that gave him the idea to accentuate the immigrant story by having the brother crash land on Ellis Island. It was, at least in the past, the symbolic gateway for many immigrants coming to America for many years. Many of the actors that were brought in came from the local workshop, Frank Silvera's workshop. Because everybody was local, the production costs were much less expensive because the production didn't have to pay for hotels for all of the talent or meals necessarily or dinners. Uh, sales preferred working with actors with theater experience specifically because they worked not only cheaply, but they could memorize pages of dialogue very quickly. And to further cut costs, some of the talent agreed to reduce their salaries in exchange for a profit share once the movie came out. Sales wanted somebody who was going to be extremely expressive to play the brother, which is what I'm going to be calling the alien character. His casting director, Barbara Shapiro, she suggested Joe Morton for the lead role. Morton had won a Tony Award for the Broadway play Raisin, and he was known for being a good actor, but not necessarily very well known, but somebody who wanted to break into movies. He had been playing a doctor, as well as that doctor's rock star twin brother, on the NBC soap opera called Another World, Initially, John Sales dismissed Joe Morton as too young, but Shapiro assured him to audition him anyway. Instead of auditioning him, Sales instead got together with Morton and just talked things out about what he wanted to achieve and what goals he was looking for and what he expected from that main role. Morton discussed his familiarity with Harlem, his birthplace. He also discussed during his life how he felt like an outsider because he and his family moved around to different military bases with his father, who was in the military, they lived in places like Germany and Japan, where he didn't necessarily know the language of the locals there. He returned to Harlem at 10 years old, and he didn't necessarily fit right in. He was beaten up often because of the way he spoke. He seemed very different to everybody else around him because he lived among different cultures in Europe and in Asia. After not being able to cope with more of this abuse, he opted to go to military school because he felt that was much more like a home that he understood growing up in his childhood. Within two days, Sales called Morton to give him the role. He was the best person for the role, he felt. Now, for the performance, Morton worked with John Sales on the rationale that people of his home world communicated through emotion instead of words. And that would allow the brother to understand what others around him are saying based on vibes, no matter what language they speak. He understands all the humans, regardless of where they come from, because his communication is nonverbal. 
The silent performance also allowed sales to shoot faster because you didn't have to worry about a sound man having to set up everything properly before each scene to keep the dialogue in sync or Joe Morton flubbing his lines and them having to do multiple takes. Morton prepared for his role by observing the behavior specifically of infants and how they behave when they're in unfamiliar surroundings, especially these young children. They can't communicate easily what's on their minds when encountering something new, but they make a lot of facial expressions and a lot of body movements to try to adjust to this new stimuli around them. To stay in character as an outsider, Morton stayed away from the other actors working on the film. He stopped talking altogether while he was on the set to keep in the right frame of mind, and he found that once people knew that he wasn't going to talk, that they continued to tell him more and more than they normally might to somebody who was engaging them in conversation, they assumed that another person's silence meant that they were listening, that they were in solidarity with them. Unless the person physically demonstrated some sort of disagreement, usually the person talking felt more free to talk more. Morton determined that the way to read what the humans were saying within the context of the film would be to look into their eyes, which for strangers sometimes makes them uncomfortable, and they might initially think that he was a bit unhinged until they realized later that he was harmless. Morton said that it helped to get respect in Hollywood working on a John Sayles movie because John Sayles was very respected, even at this time, very respected in the business. This would be the first of three collaborations. After this, he did Lone Star and City of Hope with John Sayles. But while other casting directors liked his performance in this film specifically, and they would mention that to him, it became disconcerting for them once they heard Joe Morton talk during the audition because it didn't really jibe with their preconceived notions of him being this physically comedic performer. He was a very serious actor, and a lot of casting directors were kind of taken aback that he was not the same person or alien that he portrayed in this film. On a positive note, Morton did meet and fall in love with uh, Nora Chavushian, who was a production assistant working on this film. They quickly married in 1984. They would divorce sometime later in 2006 after having kids and a relatively long marriage there. Sales did feel a bit self-conscious being a white man and an outsider to Harlem and telling the story, even if he felt that it would help, but he did find himself readily embraced by his black collaborative partners, as well as the people in the community. A lot of the cast here and half of the crew were black, including Craig Rice, that assistant director. Rice barked orders enough for passersby to think he was actually the director instead of Sales, so they felt that this was a black-run movie regardless. For cinematography, Sales brought in future director Ernest Dickerson. This is Dickerson's first real feature work. He did cinematography for the hour-long Spike Lee 1983 thesis film called Joe's Bed-Stuy Barbershop, We Cut Heads, something where Sales admired Dickerson's work, doing a lot with very little money. Now, to make some scenes work, they had to get very creative. They filmed a subway sequence within this out-of-service railway car within a subway museum. Other scenes had to be shot guerrilla-style with hidden cameras because they lacked adequate permits around the city. Visual effects here, well, there's not a lot to speak of. They're mostly left to our imagination. Sales says that the exterior of the brothers' spaceship that we see at the beginning of this film it really only cost $12 to make. And outer space itself was created using black construction paper that had holes poked into it with pushpins. To get by with these minimal visual effects, sales concentrated much more on producing better sound effects, which is especially key when you have a silent lead character. So the sound mix was definitely given much more emphasis because it was much cheaper to produce and it could produce so much more within your imagination if you're watching it. 
Mason Daring came in and scored the film and also provided quite a few of the songs on the soundtrack. He co-wrote two songs with John Sayles himself for the movie, a song called Homeboy, which featured vocals by Joel Morton, and Promised Land, which ends the film. Daring also composed the songs that were sung by uh, jazz diva Dee Dee Bridgewater, Getaway, and Boss of the Block. She was also a Tony winner for the work that she did as Glinda the Good Witch in The Wiz. The Brother from Another Planet, I think this is the kind of movie that you would never see a studio make. It has its share of rough edges. It has exploratory elements. They don't always push forward the plot or its themes. There's kind of a rough draft quality to it, maybe because of the quickness with which it was conceived and produced. But it is also because of these things that The Brother from Another Planet is a refreshing change of pace if you're somebody who prefers not to see the same old polished formula films that Hollywood churns out. It is through its rough edges, very warm, very friendly, very comical, and thoughtful as a take on American society from this outsider's perspective. Sales says that the brothers' plight is similar to freed black people during the Underground Railroad during slavery era. Their problems did not end once they escaped their slavery. And similarly, the brother escapes the ills of his homeworld, but still finds it difficult to succeed on this planet where slavery no longer exists due to residual racism effects. Sales also says that the film is not overtly political, but it does comment on the waste of human potential within our society due to existing racism and classism. The brother has all of these extraordinary gifts, but because of his origin and where he is in life and his outward appearance, he has to hide them if he wants to continue living in metaphorical freedom. Like the African experience in the New World, the brother comes to the country as a slave and then struggles to find a way to fit in when he's escaped his slavery. And although he's not necessarily as in tune or as sane as the rest, at least that's not how he's perceived, he does get a job, but it's so far beneath his skills he fixes video games before finally coming into his own, free from the shackles that once bound him. One of the strengths of the brother from another planet is its insider's view and also its outsider's view of Harlem. Outsiders assume Harlem to be a filthy, crime-ridden slums, but Sale's film, because it could actually show Harlem as it existed, shows it as full of this eclectic mix of people and art and music and culture, very rich and vibrant, not necessarily one big slum full of crime. The brother here is able to assimilate very easily compared to later in the film, there's these two white men from uh, Midwestern college who can't seem to fit in. They stick out so much more, not only for their external appearance, but because they're so apprehensive. Their first thought is to get out of Harlem and to try to do so unharmed. And the people of Harlem who are living there, they're not really trying to physically escape their life there. They find other ways to escape their prejudice and oppressive poverty through such things as drinking or video games or other forms of escape, as they do in other places in the United States. It's very common for people who are living in certain conditions to try to find their escape when they can. The film shows the darker side of escapism by tackling the drug issue head-on, the death of a young man from the neighborhood, and the subsequent investigation by the brother. Although he is very new to Earth, the brother already has preconceived notions that white skin somehow is not always to be trusted, and he gains that from the body language of some of the other people around him in Harlem. The bounty hunters, of course, are both white, so he already had those notions of white skin as potential danger and enslavement, but there's also the drug dealer in the film who's white, and he meets a card trickster on the subway train who seems benign, but his fast-talking and pushy nature do still make the brother uncomfortable. He wants to be left alone, 
but he doesn't necessarily have a means to escape at that moment. And the last trick that the card shark performs, it's not really a trick, but it's the truth. He tells the brother that he's going to make all the white people on the car disappear, including himself, which happens because it's the last stop before the train enters Harlem. Now, Sale says that this is an allegory with fantasy elements, many metaphors about race. And one specific metaphor is that when you're a minority, you have to exchange some of your identity if you want to succeed in the society that's dominated by the majority. You have to become more like them and less like the people that you grew up around. Even some of the black actors that Sales auditioned for with parts in the film indicated to him some of this aspect. You know, they changed their demeanor because he was a white director and a white writer and they wanted to get into the film. Sales maintains a leisurely pace here, sometimes lagging at the beginning of the film, but good characterizations do abound and they really help. Dee Dee Bridgewater, she's very fun as a jazz singer who befriends the brother and Fisher Stevens during his walk-on and then walk-off performance as a card hustler is very good. Sales and Strathairn, Strathairn was an actor friend from his days at Williams College, somebody he collaborates with many times during his films. They're fun as these emotionless men in black. This came out, you know, obviously... Uh, many years before the film Men in Black, but there are aspects of those characters within the characters here. If you like Men in Black, I definitely think that this is somehow a, a very cheaply made precursor to that film. These Men in Black come from the brother's home planet. They're trying to return him to the life that he was seeking to get away from, and they shriek like cats when feeling aggressive. Very comical. They do kung fu and all kinds of funny things. Sales felt that there were two big audiences for the brother from another planet. Well, they're not necessarily big, in terms of mainstream, but they definitely had a fervent following. One would be the art house movie crowd, a crowd that he knows very well because most of his movies play in art houses. And in particular, he thought black moviegoers would enjoy The Brother from Another Planet. This is an independent production. It has a lot of social commentary, and that was going to draw in people who prefer smaller films that have something to say, and specifically here about the black experience with that thematic material that he brings in. This mostly black ensemble of actors, the elements of comedy within the story, there's that jokey kung fu scene. That would target many things that black audiences tend to find entertaining in a lot of the films that they go and enjoy. New Yorkers would especially find their humor very relatable because there's a lot of New York jokes within the context of the film. For instance, anytime somebody asks where the brother is from, he gives a thumbs up sign and then others comically take that to mean either he comes from uptown or the Bronx or someplace else and they connect that and say that's probably why he's a bit off or a bit different. He comes from, even though it's not very far, it's worlds apart from where Harlem is at that time. Now, in marketing the film, John Sales and his producing partner, and also his girlfriend, they have been together since 1973. They're still together. Maggie Renzi, the producer of the film, they coordinated with inner-city voter registration drives, not only in New York, but also Chicago, and they offered half-price matinee tickets to go see The Brother from Another Planet for people who would become newly registered. And that was not only a good way to empower the voter, but also to get people to come see the film and be motivated by somebody trying to find inner power and inner strength, even within an environment in which people tended to feel without power. The Brother from Another Planet, I think it benefits here, not only from those good performances here in many small roles. The denizens of this Harlem bar, the way they talk to each other, shows that John Sayles has a great ear for dialogue, and he brings out a good dose of wit from all of these characters. Joe Morton, I think, steals the movie with his endearing portrayal of the brother trying to get by on this world that doesn't appreciate him because of their preconceived notions. But like the reason people from all over the world still come to America, it, even with its flaws, America still has the promise of a better life than the world from which he came or they came. 
The brother from another planet debuted at Cannes, and at Cannes it was a big hit among the French audiences there. It played in France quite a bit as well. They viewed a lot of the shtick here as very Chaplin-esque, kind of a satire like Charles Chaplin would make. In the United States, it was a big success as well. It made over 10 times its budget. It grossed $3.7 million off of that $350,000, and it opened the door for more opportunities within the film industry from those who admired sales' socially relevant storytelling. The reviews were somewhat mixed, mostly positive, but still mixed, maybe because it's a movie that, like its main character, is kind of odd and really hard to define, but I do think that audiences over the years have come to appreciate what sales did here. It found a cult audience, especially in cable showings and on home video, and it remains today a cult favorite from those people who have ever watched it. It doesn't get a lot of publicity, but hopefully with a podcast episode like this or other people championing it, we can get more people to watch it and enjoy it as well. For all of this, I really enjoy The Brother from Another Planet. I've watched it a few times in my life, but I haven't watched it in like 30 years. It was a favorite of mine when I was in college, like in the early 1990s, something I would show my friends, and we all enjoyed it. So three and a half stars is what I'm going to give The Brother from Another Planet. I think it's held up quite well, and there's still a lot of relevant material thematically within the film that very much resonates today because we have a lot of talk of immigration and systematic racism and all of that other stuff. It's very much in the headlines today. I definitely recommend if you're at all interested in wanting to get a take from a different era that still seems very relevant today, The Brother from Another Planet is definitely a very enjoyable and entertaining way to take those very serious notions in. So three and a half stars out of four is what I give The Brother from Another Planet. Now, interestingly enough, John Sayles, after he made this film, and it was a success, he did talk about writing. He's been talking about writing a pilot for a proposed TV series based on this concept. He talked about it in 1985. He's talked about it in 2017. Nothing has really come of it yet, but yet there's still always talk about bringing it forward as a possible show for television. Will it ever happen? I don't know, but uh, it would be nice to see something like this get more recognition for sure. So... As far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, I'm going to be moving forward with another film that features aliens coming to Earth and also being misunderstood. It does feature Joe Morton, but Morton does not play an alien in the film. In fact, he's a cop that's investigating the aliens. So kind of a twist there, and he does talk in the film, by the way. It's from 1987. If you think The Brother from Another Planet is obscure, I'm diving, diving deep for a film that, as far as I know, has never been released, at least not legally, on DVD, much less Blu-ray or 4K or anything else, even though it did get a studio distribution. From 1987, starring Ioni Sky, Joe Morton, and many others, it is called Stranded. And if you don't know where to watch that film, it's not streaming anywhere, and you can't purchase it on anything except for VHS, which you probably don't even have hooked up at the moment if you even have a VHS player at all. My suggestion is, as with The Brother from Another Planet, you can always check out YouTube or some other streaming platform site. These things are out there for the people who are curious. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoy the review of The Brother from Another Planet. If you have your own thoughts on this film, if you feel that there's anything more that needs to be said about it that I can bring forward or mention in any future episodes, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Email, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All of the links are there for you to get in contact with me whenever you want. Quipster.net. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world while trying to escape those men in black in 80s movies. Oh.